Well, hopefully over the last few weeks, you've been reminded of how important your thinking is. That everything you do, everything you feel, every attitude you develop begins with a thought. So Paul makes it the cornerstone of his letter to the Philippians. Chapter 4, verse 8, he concludes his letter by saying, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Today's lesson is entitled, Just As It Ought to Be. It's the definition of the simple word right or righteous in Scripture. The word is used a lot. And Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is right. Now, I have a feeling that you'd like to believe that you don't think too many wrong thoughts. Okay? But you probably often struggle with thinking thoughts that are not right, that don't fit with who you are in Christ. Anytime you think, I don't have what it takes, I'm going to fail. Um, Anytime you think, I'm not good enough, I think God deserted me. Okay, any of those kind of thoughts? Those are, according to the Bible, not right thoughts. The definition the Bible uses is this. Right is in the proper state or condition, operating as designed. Sin made that impossible, didn't it? (laughs) Sin made so you didn't run properly. But redemption has restored you to God's great plan for your life. He made you right. That's a fact. If you've placed your trust in Christ to save you, then you are right, in right standing with God. He has set everything between you and Him right. But now the question is, on your part, based on your responsibility, Are your thoughts right? In other words, are your thoughts consistent with what God has done for you? Are your attitudes in harmony with what God has accomplished through His redemption of you? What then is the biblical perspective on rightness? Or that's just another word for righteousness. And Today, we ask you to ask the question, is my thinking consistent with what God is sa- says is true about me in Christ? In other words, um, if God thinks one thing about you and you think another, who's right? Only one of you can be right. And God is always Right, his ways are always righteous. So, if he says, uh, I see that you're really concerned about this situation in the world, I think I'd like to use you to change it. 
And you go, oh, not me, God. I can pray. I can help. I can encourage the other people to do it. But I can't possibly be the one. But he says, yes, you are the one who's right. (laughs) God's right. And yet, unless you change your thinking, you'll never be able to be that person. Not because God isn't right, but because you and God are not in agreement regarding what is right. That's why a great deal of Scripture is invested in telling you who you are in Christ. And when you read it, you think, that's impossible. That's not me. And yet God says, yes, from my perspective, this is you. If we could ever start thinking like God thinks about us, then there would be a big change, not just in our thinking, but in our feelings, in our attitudes, in our behaviors. So let's look at what the Bible says about the topic. First of all, the fact of righteousness. What is it and where does it come from? And whenever we talk about right, we always have to then determine who's going to decide what is right. Because two people, they might even be married to each other, can stand back to back and be absolutely certain that each of them is right, right? And they might even be foolish enough to be willing to die on that hill, right? Of, of fighting over who's right. But the truth is, in the end run, only God is right. Who decides what is right? Well, in the end run, it's not you. And it's not me. And it's not other people. No matter how convinced of the facts they may be, they are not the measure of rightness. John says this in 1 John 2. We read it as we opened the service today. If you know that he is righteous, that he is right, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Only God is right, and if we are ever right, it's only because we have submitted to His rightness. Not because we're smarter than other people, not because we were born with a superior heritage to other people, but because God has given us His righteousness. We call this in theology, imputed righteousness, as opposed to earned righteousness, which is you trying to do better. Okay? You doing the best you can do. Imputed righteousness is, God says, you trying to do the best you can do is not good enough. Let me give you the righteousness of my son. He will exchange on his cross his righteousness for your sin. Then you will have righteousness but not anything you can be proud of because it was a gift. It was from God alone. John Calvin said this, We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. In other words, a prerequisite of 
embracing the rightness of God is to declare, I know I'm not right. I mean, that's not the way we usually start, is it? If there's an argument, you almost always start out from this point of view. Well, I don't know exactly what the truth is, but I know I'm not wrong. Don't you? I do, okay? And that's a sign of my sinfulness, okay? (laughs) Because in Christ, only God is right. The impossibility of righteousness, and that's (laughs) the real problem, isn't it? Okay? Yes, God is right, and yet... Uh, have you read the Old Testament? Okay. A declaration to the rightness of God, right? It's just that who could ever follow all of that? Who could ever be that good? Who could ever pay attention that closely? Um, the Pharisees of Jesus' day used to invest themselves in following the least little detail of the law and becoming determined that they were righteous because they followed it to the nth degree. They would tithe, which is easy enough. A tithe is 10%, so that's not too hard to figure. Uh, You get your check, you divide it by 10, that's your tithe. But they didn't leave it there, okay? They believed that you should tithe on everything you own, everything you have. And some things that you own and have aren't that easily divided up into ten parts, are they? Okay. They would, they would uh, even tithe on their spices. So imagine you take your, you know, you're going to put some pepper on your egg and you shake it on the table and you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Those go on my egg. Oh, ten. I got to take that to church today and put it in the offering plate. Okay. You'd spend all of your time dividing everything by ten, wouldn't you? And in the end run, you still wouldn't do it well enough. The Pharisees were obsessed with this. But all the law does for us is indicate how far in our own energy we fall short of God's holy standard. So what went wrong with us? What's our major malfunction? Why isn't it? We want to do right. We want to think right. But we don't. We are infected with a disease we can't seem to shake. The wisest man purportedly who ever lived, Solomon, said this. Indeed, there was no one on earth who is righteous. I may be convinced that I'm right regarding something, but in the end run, every time I'm proven that I'm wrong in some way. For instance, I might, as a human being, be determined to do the right thing, and I might be smart enough to figure out what the right thing is, and I might be committed enough to do what the right thing is, but Jesus pointed out something. Are you doing it for the right reason? Well, now I have to stop and think, don't I? Because almost every time I do something, I have mixed motives, right? And in there, am I sure that 5% of the reason I'm preaching today isn't because I like people to look at me and listen to me? I can't be certain of that. I don't have time to waste on being certain of that. But I know that probably it's in there someplace. Once again, even doing the right thing in the right way 
I wasn't doing it for the right reason. So what am I going to do? Be troubled about that? Do I go back to my uh, house and like beat myself up today because I know that I fell short of God's right standard? No. I simply accept that righteousness is not found in me. Jerry Bridges wrote this. The problem with self-righteousness, that is, me trying to be right on my own, is that it seems almost impossible to recognize it in ourselves. We will own up to almost any other sin but this one. When we have this attitude, though, we deprive ourselves of the joy of living in the grace of God. For you see, grace is only for sinners. Okay, Grace is only for people who recognize If God doesn't give me grace, His righteousness, I'm finished. I have no hope of ever living up to the holy standard of God. So the gift of righteousness comes my way. I need help. You're not surprised to hear that, but that's hard for me to say. I not only need help, I need somebody to do something for me that I could never do for myself. Now, who's going to help me? Somebody who's a little more right than I am? Like, maybe you're going to say, well, I'll, I'll trust in Dale. He's been a Christian a long time. Or I'll trust in David. He's a preacher. He must have it right. And, and the answer is, no, you're still going to, as Paul once wrote in Romans, fall short, right? Now, I'm kind of an expert on this topic. Falling short, you know, being short. And the thing is, here's the deal. That if you're short, you're short. It doesn't matter how short you are. And it doesn't matter how short you are of God's righteous standing. It doesn't matter in this situation whether you are Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa. You fall short. You're not right. Something needs to be changed. So where can we turn for help? Paul, I think, succinctly says it and very effectively in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him, speaking of his son, Jesus Christ, who had no sin. In other words, if you're going to find a solution to your unrightness, then you're going to have to find it in someone who's all the time and absolutely right. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only way you're ever going to be made right isn't by coming to church isn't by listening to the pastor, isn't by praying harder, isn't by dressing differently, okay? It's by putting your trust in the gift that God offers you in His Son. Joseph Prince said this, Believing that you are the righteousness of God in Christ, by the way, that's a hard thing for me to believe. But God says it's true. 
and simply receiving the gift of no condemnation. No condemnation. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because he points out in this saying that the minute you say, you know, I think I finally got it right, then don't you hear a voice going, yeah, but what about that one time? Yeah, but I've noticed you're still struggling with this, right? And there's this haunting voice that says, you are condemned. But in offering us His righteousness, God offers us no condemnation. Why? Because there's no condemnation for Christ. Do you recall that one time Jesus said to of all people, I will never do this, to His enemies. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And silence, echoing silence, was the answer back. Because while they didn't like the way he did things, and they were offended by his treatment of their traditions, no one could point out his sin. People don't have that problem with me. (laughs) But when I'm in Christ, no condemnation. That's amazing, isn't it? Have you ever read that, that verse, Romans 8, 1? I'm sure you have many times. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. Right? But you need to go back and read the paragraph that immediately precedes it at the end of chapter 7. Because in it, Paul is saying, I'm still struggling with sin. What's my problem? No matter how hard I try to be good, I keep making bad choices. There's no answer to my dilemma, says Paul. And then, verse 1 of chapter 8, he concludes, but it doesn't really matter, does it? No, it doesn't, because there's no condemnation in Christ. I'm not that person anymore. I now am a new creature in Christ. So how do we possess this kind of righteousness? How can I take it and make it mine? Well, this was something that um, Martin Luther struggled with. (laughs) He said in his early diaries, I learned to hate the righteousness of God. Because no matter how much I denied myself, no matter how much I sacrificed, no matter how much I suffered, I continually fell short of that standard. And so I learned to hate that standard. Until I realized that God wanted to give me, in His Son, His righteousness. He interestingly found that out when he was studying in preparation for teaching a Bible study. If any of you ever get a chance to lead a Bible study or preach or anything like that, one of the things you'll find out is that God exposes all kinds of sin and issues in your life while you're preparing. That might be the whole reason He's doing it. I don't know. But the thing is, if you think that on Sunday the pastor is like preaching at you, you need to understand it's only because the message has hit deeply in his life as well. Well, uh, Martin Luther had that same experience when he was studying and read Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, he had a hard time believing that there was a gospel 
gospel means good news. And if good news meant being better, he wasn't finding it good news at all. He was finding it very frustrating news. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, meaning being made known. A righteousness that is by faith. By faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous or the just will live by faith. That was an eye-opener for um, Martin Luther. He came to realize that the only way he could have right standing with God would be if God gave it to him. And the only way God could give it to him is if he paid the price for his righteousness. And he found out that in the scriptures, indeed, that's exactly what God had done. John Bunyan was a preacher who wrote, some of you may have read Pilgrim's Progress. And he said this about righteousness. Wake up, see your own wretchedness, and fly to the Lord Jesus. He is the righteousness of God. For he himself is God, and only by believing in his righteousness will you be delivered from condemnation. So what is the impact on our lives who have come to believe then? I mean, for the one still caught in sin, we understand the response then is by faith to believe that someone perfect Someone sinless took your place on the cross, died in your place for your sin, paying the penalty for your sin so that you could be saved. But all of you, if not all of you, most of you, have already taken that step. So what is the meaning of this message for us? Well, the meaning is... That now that you've come to believe this, it wasn't just so that you could um, avoid an eternity in hell. You did it because God wants you now to live in this right standing. He wants it to affect not only your behavior, but as we're learning in this passage, your thoughts. He wants you to think like a righteous person. Now, that takes time and is a process. Thankfully, God is very, very patient. I mean, without raising your hands, how many of you have thought at least one unrighteous thought while you were sitting there listening to me? If I paid attention, I probably have thought a couple of them, okay? I still have an issue. I still have a problem, Uh, But right now, I confess that before you and say, I want to stand today in my thinking, in my feelings, in my attitudes, in my behavior, in the righteousness of Christ. I want to reflect in my life what is spiritually true about me. I am in right relationship with God. I now can be in right relationship with anybody around me. I mean, for instance... Talk about righteousness being given as a gift. Has anyone ever done an unrighteous act toward you? 
Okay, now ultimately it was against God, but it hurt you. Did you have a hard time forgiving them? If you had a hard time forgiving them, then you weren't standing in the righteousness of Christ. I mean, Jesus told a parable regarding that, right? He said there was a a man who uh, owed his master a great debt, and when the master called for the debt to be paid back, he could not. But when he was about to be sent away into debtor's prison, he begged for mercy. And so the rich landowner forgave him his debt, forgave it, erased it off the books. And then that slave went out and found his fellow slave who owed him about a day's wages, a debt that could in time be paid back. And he demanded the same of that slave. And when he couldn't pay him back, he did have him thrown into prison, even though he begged for mercy. Well, when the landowner found out, he reversed the order because, again, righteousness has been given you as a gift. So when other people behave unrighteously, (laughs) well then, it should be a simple matter, of course, for you to extend grace to them. After all, grace has been extended to you. So what happens next in our lives as we not only embrace by faith righteousness, Christ's righteousness, but walk in it. Well, interestingly, the passage in the Old Testament indicates. Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, one of the minor prophets. Who is wise? In other words, what's an intelligent way to live? Let them realize these things, and who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Okay, well, let's, let's go back. Okay? This is in the Old Testament. Okay? So he's not talking to people, likely, who had the uh, foresight to look ahead and think, oh, well, that's going to be given to us as a gift in God's Son, Jesus Christ. We have the benefit of the gospel, so we can do that. They didn't. So they made their best effort to follow out the law. Well, Hosea says, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's just that all that happened was, as you were trying to please God with your righteous living, you found out how far short you fell of the standard. And just when you were about ready to give up, here comes the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we look back on that event, but they were looking forward to it. When the Savior would come to give us the righteousness we see. And so we seek to live in that righteousness. Says William Penn, Right is right, even if everyone is against it. And wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. And yet, that's kind of the world we live in, isn't it? You may even, as a Christian, excuse certain behaviors. By the way, it's not your business to excuse or condemn behaviors in other people. But you may excuse behaviors in yourself because, what was it, if you raised adolescents, do you remember what they used to say when they were growing up? Everybody's doing it, right, exactly. And again, that doesn't make it right. That makes it more socially acceptable 
that makes it so probably you're not going to go to jail for it, doesn't necessarily make it right. Okay? And so (laughs) we recognize today we are made right in Christ. Now the question is, will I do right today? Will I behave righteously? And in between those two are a few sub-steps, and one of them is, will I think righteous thoughts? Have you ever done a Bible study that takes on the idea of who you are in Christ? That is, what the Bible says about you now that you are a redeemed child of God. All right. Well, those are good studies, but if you've done one of those, now you need to go back and say, do I think like that? Do I behave like that? Are my feelings consistent with that kind of truth? Truth is, the day you put your trust in Christ, you were made right with God. And if you're thinking, well, that's the most important thing, it is the most important thing. You couldn't be more right. But another question you need to ask, we even sometimes ask this question, am I in my right mind? Okay. But instead of when you're hearing that going, you know, am I, am I, are my thoughts reasonable and logical? You should be asking the question, am I thinking righteous thoughts? Am I thinking about me? Am I thinking about my world? Am I thinking about my relationship with God? My relationships with other people? Righteously. In my new standing in Christ. So here's what we're going to do for homework. This week, think of yourself at last becoming all you can be. That is, all God created you to be minus the sin that has messed up the whole process then ask what does that look like how does it feel how might my thinking be different if I saw myself as that person then do a little research what promises from the Bible support this view what does God said about me in his word that isn't necessarily reflected in the way I think or behave and finally how would thinking this way about myself daily begin to change my life for instance if there are certain behaviors you keep going back to because you just think that's who I am And you started thinking differently about who you are. If you maybe stopped and thought, you know, I'm a child of God. I probably shouldn't be saying those things. I probably shouldn't be behaving that way. I probably shouldn't be thinking those thoughts. Instead of condemning yourself, declare the righteousness of God and determine to begin to think and feel and develop attitudes that reflect and act righteously next week we're going to talk about spring cleaning for the brain you need to do that you ever do spring cleaning clean out the closets we're going to talk about it next week let's pray father 
Thanks for your word and for the challenge that comes to us to remind us again that righteousness will only be achieved as we place our faith, as Martin Luther learned, entirely and completely in you and in what you say about us. What you say about us apart from you and what you say about us by our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.